Hey, well, we are back in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18 tonight. And I've titled this message from James 1, 13 through 18, Relentlessly Pursuing Holiness. And I got to be honest with you, over the years in my study of God's Word, few passages um, challenge me and have challenged me more than this particular passage here that we're going to look at tonight. It's a passage that has been hugely impactful for my own heart, and I hope that it will be for us. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. There's a book by Jerry Bridges titled, The Pursuit of Holiness. I don't know if any of you have read that book. Yeah, some of you. The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. Great book that every single one of you should read. Uh, Many books by Jerry Bridges that are just worthwhile. But he writes this about the issue of holiness. Quote, we're more concerned about our own victory in this pursuit of holiness, our own victory over sin, than we are about the fact that, we, that our sins grieve God's heart. Even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And as we grow in holiness, we must also grow in our hatred of sin. And God, being infinitely holy, has an infinite hatred of sin, end quote. So true, isn't it? We must hate our sin because God hates sin. And brothers, I'm here to exhort us and challenge us tonight as I've been exhorted and challenged in my own study by the Holy Spirit through the study of God's Word. I'm here to encourage us tonight that God wants holy men of God. Did you hear that? God wants Christ-like men. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, God's word says this, You shall be holy, Christian, for I am holy. God wants holy children because he himself is holy, and that's why he has saved us. He has saved us so that we would be set apart from our sin And so that we would be, by His grace, putting on functional or practical righteousness. That we would be doing that which pleases Him. And so we really want to consider this issue tonight of holiness. And if you remember the context, don't forget about the flow of thought leading into this particular text, okay? James has just instructed us about how to respond to what we might call external trials in verses 2 through 12. External in the sense that they are outside of us, apart from anything that we've necessarily done wrong. External in the sense that trials come upon us unexpectedly. They are multicolored, variegated, unique, right? They, are, they come in all shapes and sizes, these trials. And so the first major section of James chapter 1 verses 2 through 12 teaches on how we should respond to these external trials, these unexpected trials. Now watch this. As you look at the text with me, down in verse 2, James uses the word trials. You see that in verse 2? Just nod your head. Yeah? Okay. You see that then in verse 3 that he uses the word testing So trials in verse 2, testing in verse 3, both of those words and both of those translations come from the same Greek word, the Greek word perosmos. Keep that on the back of your mind. 
And that word perasmos, translated in verse 2, trials, translated in verse 3 as testing, depending on the context, that word can be translated in various ways. Context, not just a simple definition of that word perasmos, determines how we translate the word as well as what it means. Context determines the meaning of that particular term in um, how it's being used, okay? And so I mentioned this because this is super important for us to keep in mind because now, as we transition into James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, on the one hand, this new section is very related, very much interconnected with verses 2 through 12. However, whereas verses 2 through 12 deal with that issue of external trials or external testings to different translations of the same word, perosmos, James chapter 1 verses 13 through 18, listen, deals with internal temptation. 2 through 12, external trials or testings. Verses 13 through 18 deal with internal temptation. That same word, perosmos, which is translated in various forms, is now used four times in verse 13, one time in verse 14, and every time that word is translated as, as temptation, right? As temptation, or tempted in verse 13, tempted, tempted, tempts, verse 14, but each person is tempted. So now that word, that same word, previously translated testing or um, trials is now translated as temptation for good reason by the English Standard Version. Because now, in these verses 13 through 18, we're no longer dealing with, with trials which have nothing to do with anything sinful that we've done on our part, verses 2 through 12. Now we're dealing with inner temptation, the inward solicitation to sin in our very hearts, which is what temptation is. This is huge. So please listen carefully. Any external, God-given trial, verses 2 through 12, has the potential, depending on how you respond to that trial, of becoming an opportunity for you and I to sin. Did you hear that? Any external trial, verses 2 through 12, has the potential, depending on how you respond to that trial or testing that God brings, it's a God-given trial, God-given testing, it has the potential of becoming an opportunity, an inward solicitation for you to sin. And at that moment, that becomes a temptation, an inner solicitation for you to give in to sin. Perhaps you one day lose your job. Or you begin to have financial struggles, as we saw last week, right? Not based upon anything sinful you've done, external trial. You're being tested. How will you respond? You've reached a fork on the road moment. Which way will you go? You can respond by humbly trusting God in the midst of financial lack or losing your job. Trusting in his promises that he's always provided for you, right? That he's never left you stranded financially. That he's always like the way that he feeds the birds of the air or clothes the lilies of the field. You can trust him. You can go that route on this fork on the road moment. Or you resort to worry, to doubt, to even questioning God's goodness in your life. 
At that fork on the road moment, your external trial or testing has become a temptation, an inner solicitation to sin by not trusting God in your heart. Running towards anxiety, towards doubt, and all of that. Your wife shares with you that it seems like you don't love her anymore. She expresses that in various ways. External trial. In the sense that, right, you're being tested. You've reached a fork on the road moment again at that moment. Right? Either you will humbly listen to her at that moment, gently ask her what she means, ask her for some examples of what she means, and you respond in humble repentance, acknowledging that you're perfectly capable as a sinful husband, as a weak, broken husband, right, saved by grace. You're perfectly capable of erring, even if unintentionally, right? And you seek her forgiveness, and you say, honey, I'm gonna, I give you my word by the grace of God that I'm going to seek to grow in that area. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. You can go that route, right, in that moment of testing, or, as most of us tend to do, right, including me, truth be told over the years, you get a little defensive, begin to blame shift or lash out at her, right? Letting her know that she is making you sin by being hypersensitive, by being selfish, self-centered. You're just being dramatic, etc., etc. Your moment of external trial or testing has now become a temptation, the inner solicitation to sin. Get the point? Any trial, perosmos, any testing, perosmos, brought by God can become an occasion for sin depending on how we respond to that trial or testing. We can embrace the testing as an opportunity to, to glorify Christ, to do good unto others, be a blessing to others, or we can respond sinfully, stunting our growth in that particular area of life that God brought the trial to grow us in and hurting others whom we love, even if unintentionally. This is why, brothers, this has been such an impactful passage for me over the years. Because sin is relentless, isn't it? I once was counseling a brother who said to me, Kempis, each night, each night that I lie on my pillow, I reminisce about my day, and I think about what a battle that particular day has been against my sin, and I'm literally, he says, exhausted. He says, and then thankfully by the grace of God, I'm reminded of how good he is to me. To allow me today to be able to live in obedience to him by his grace. But boy, I am tired as I lay my head on my pillow at night. Maybe you feel this way too. And in one sense, isn't it true that if you're fighting for holiness and to be like Jesus, every one of us feels that way to some extent or another. Can I get an Amen. I do, brothers. But let's understand, let's understand the crucial battle that we face, okay, as we walk through this particular passage. And let's begin by knowing what we're up against, okay? In the relentless pursuit of holiness, first of all, we need to know the deadly enemies. Know the deadly enemies. We need to know what we're up against, and, right, battle with our eyes wide open. Right off the bat, James makes it crystal clear that when we're tempted to sin, we cannot and must not blame God for our sin. God is not your enemy, believer. 
Your father who loves you is not your enemy. Look at verse 13. He's writing to believers. Remember this. Christians, Jew, primarily Jewish believers, professing believers. Verse 13, let no one say, and that's a command, by the way. That's an imperative. Let no one say when he is tempted, when he is inwardly solicited to sin, I am being tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself, emphatic construction there, he himself tempts no one. James says, do your search, Christian. Do a thorough search, and upon doing your thorough search, you won't ever find God as the source or origin of your sin. He's nowhere to be found as the one who has caused you to sin. Because that implies something about his, his character, doesn't it? Now, why does James even have to say this? Why does James even have to command believers to not blame God for their sin or for our sin? And it's, here's the answer. Because our hearts are so wicked, so self-justifying brothers, that our tendency, instead of taking personal responsibility for our sin, our natural propensity, were it not for the grace of God, is to find scapegoats, yes? Beginning with God and extending unto other people. At the top of the list, we blame God for our problems. Just like one infamous Adam in the Garden of Eden. Remember him? The woman whom you gave me. Remember that? The woman whom you gave me. It's your fault, God. I mean, blame shifting and finding the scapegoat brothers is as old as Genesis chapter 3, right? At the fall. James exhorts, don't you dare. Let no one say, God has made me sin, that it's God's fault that I've compromised and I've fallen into that sin or that I continue to struggle in that sin. It's God's fault. Now, verse 13 isn't simply giving a command without any theological basis. I want you to think about this. Notice that we're told why we shouldn't blame God, right? Look at verse 13. First of all, because of his character. We shouldn't blame God because of his character. For God, verse 13, cannot be tempted with evil. Why? Because it's against God's nature, right, to be tempted by evil. He's holy, he's pure, he's inherently blameless, perfect, untouched by evil because of his character. Psalm 5 and verse 4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness, listen to this, no evil dwells with you. Crystal clear? Pretty crystal clear, right? Psalm 92 verse 15, the Lord is upright there is no unrighteousness in him. Thus, since God's, God's character is holy and blameless, right? Verse 13, it follows then, look at the text in verse 13, that he himself tempts no one. Emphatic construction there. He himself tempts no one. There's no way that God will make you sin. And see the distinction Please note the distinction. Does God test people? Yes or no? Yes. Verses 2 through 12 of James, right? 
God tests people. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. He tested Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 1. Does God bring trials upon his people for his glory and their good? Yes. We just studied that in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, right? He absolutely does. God tests people and brings trials upon his fellow children or his children, but he does not solicit us to sin because that would mean that he's acting contrary to his character towards his beloved children, right? Think about a physical father. You and I as dads, would we ever intentionally want to hurt our children? Want to get them to sin? Not a good father, not a loving father. We might, we might allow hard things in their lives so that they might grow in character, right? And put them to the test and all of that. But we're not going to solicit them to sin. No good dad, right, would do that. Why would God do that? It's against his character to do that. He does not solicit us to sin. It's unthinkable. Job 34 verse 12 God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. And then Paul writes in Romans 9.14, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be, he says. Not a chance that God would do any injustice. It's inconceivable. It's unthinkable, says Paul. That's the sense of may it never be. He says, just look at God's character, James says. And look at God's charity, his character and his charity. It's against his nature, his character to solicit you to sin. And it is against his, his charity, his love for, you, for, to, for him to do you harm by causing you to sin. He's a loving heavenly father. We're going to see that in a bit. But if God is not our enemy, brothers, then who are our enemies? Who are the deadly enemies? Well... There's our adversary, the devil, right? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Our adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. John chapter 14, verse 30 says that Satan is the, is the ruler of this world. And then later in James chapter 4, verse 7, we're going to be instructed to, to resist him. To resist the devil and he will flee from us. So the devil is one deadly enemy, isn't he? In addition to the devil, there is also the, the evil world system in which we live. Not the physical world itself, but the evil world system. The system of thinking and living that is opposed to God. That system. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Evil world system. And 1 John 2.15 instructs us, do not love the world, Christian, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he expands on this. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world system, our deadly enemies, the world system, Satan or the devil. But then there is also, ready for this, the mighty self. The sinful you. The sinful me. 
The flesh. The flesh. Not just our, our physical body flesh, but that part of us that seeks to function independent of the Spirit of God. The flesh. That part of us that seeks to operate self-sufficiently apart from God's leading and apart from the truth of God's word. The flesh. The mighty you, the mighty me. Arch enemy. And this is where James goes next. If God is not the source of the inner solicitation to sin of our temptation, then who is responsible for that sin? Verse 14 answers that question for us. And so second, in the relentless pursuit of holiness, write this down. We must beware of the deceptive strategy. Beware, brother in Christ, of the deceptive strategy. Verse 14. Now in a sense, James has already started to tell us where the deceptive strategy begins, right? It begins when we acquit ourselves by blaming God, right? Proud self-justification begins that downward spiraling effect in our lives as believers. But now he really drills this home. You've heard the famous slogan, right? The devil made me what? Do it, right? That pretty much sums up the way of the world. Well, James says, nah, the devil made, didn't make you do anything, if you have the Spirit of God living in you, you made you do it. You made you do it. And he really zeroes in on this. In verse 14, he, he unanimously puts the responsibility on, on us, on you, on me as Christian men when we fall into temptation. Look at verse 14. But, by contrast, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Did you observe the grammar like good exegetes there? Notice the grammar there again. Each person, he is lured and implied he is enticed by his own desire. You see that? What's the point? We are the problem. We are the problem, brothers, when we fall into sin. Yes, there is Satan. Yes, there is the world system. But don't ever forget it. We ourselves are the primary culprits when we fall into sin, not God and not anyone else. But what do we normally do? What's our tendency? What's our propensity? We tend to blame God, right? Maybe explicitly or maybe implicitly in the very recesses of your heart. If you were to dig deep in there, you really do think it's God's fault for certain things that you're doing right now, right? Right? We tend to blame our circumstances, blame our, our past experiences, even the exploitation that legitimately somebody imposed on us, and we say, because they did that to me, then I have a right to do that to somebody else, and this is why I am the way that I am, and I cannot help it. It's my upbringing. It's my past experiences. Hey, it's the government when I don't pay my taxes. It's the economy if I refuse to pay my taxes or get, put, put together my taxes, there are people who justify it that way, right? Have you met some of them? I have. We point our finger at everything. We point our finger at, at other people. Beginning with those in our home. Beginning with our spouse, perhaps. Suppose that you blow your top off, right? You get sinfully angry, right? Brother, listen. It's not ultimately your kid's fault or your wife's fault that you blow your top off, right? We're lying to ourselves when we make the statement, well, she made me do it. 
If she, fill in the blank, wasn't this way, or if she, fill in the blank, did that, then I wouldn't be led to sinful anger in the way that I've been led to. How many of you have explicitly or implicitly thought that way? Man, only 10, 15 of us are being honest right now, right? And single guys, you will be guilty of this later on, okay? So don't even think, well, I'm single, so I'm good, right? We're very hypocritical that way, aren't we, as men? You blame our spouse. It's not that we can't help it, brothers. You ever been right smack in the middle of a heated argument with someone, let's just say your spouse, your kid, or someone else? You're in the middle of this heated argument. Your tone isn't when it should be. Your facial expressions are angry, right? You're just really vexed in that moment, sinfully speaking. But as soon as you answer the phone, right, Pastor Mike calls you. Right, or some other person calls you, another brother in Christ or whatever whom you respect calls you. Have you noticed how all of a sudden your tone changes? Hey, hey, brother, you woman, that hey, bro, how's it going, man? Have you ever noticed the tone changes? You lower your voice. You're pretty kind, right? You see how we're so hypocritical. We actually can control our emotions, right? When it's convenient to us. No one is making us do anything. Because we have the Spirit of God living in us. We have a choice at that moment. Because God has given us that by His Spirit who lives in us. And the guidance of the, of the Word of God. Amen? So we have. We're not helpless. See, we're quick to point fingers rather than take personal responsibility for our sin. It's the same thing when you say... You know, the reason why, why I give in to porn or to sexual immorality is because men in our day have it a lot harder than any other generation. That's why I give in to porn or to other things. You know how many men I counseled during COVID and during times of isolation and all the stuff that we went through who were justifying their going to porn or masturbating in private, doing those kinds of things because of the fact that they felt, quote unquote, isolated. So they blame people, they blame the church, churches who weren't meeting, and they justified their sin and doing what they were doing because of that. You know how many men I've, I counseled during those times? And maybe some of you were there. Or maybe some of you are there right now. You know, if I didn't have such easy access to porn, like that laptop or this smartphone, I wouldn't be tempted to sin by looking at porn. Technology is the problem, not me. Blame shifting. Or, if my wife were more willing to have sex with me, then I wouldn't be tempted to give in to sinful thoughts or to give in to porn. My wife is the problem. I can't help it. You know, if I were married, you single guys, if I were married, right, and I had an outlet and a spouse to have sexual intimacy, then I wouldn't have to practice masturbation or be looking at pornography. I would have an outlet there, and my, my problems would be over. Is that true, married men? That the battle against sin is over because now you have an outlet? Yes or no? No. So single guy, don't, don't believe that lie, right? The battle is, is for the rest of your life. It will look different, right? 
Maybe it's just at the level of our thoughts. And as we get older, some of that goes away too. Praise the Lord, right? But the battle is lifelong. Can I get an amen? We give in to immorality excusing this. You see all this? We blame shift. Listen, any or all of those items that I mentioned, brothers, to some extent or another may help explain or, or may exacerbate why you have a struggle or a propensity in a particular area of sanctification and certainly good counseling, good biblical counseling that is gracious and loving, committed to the truth and love. Uh, it's profitable in counseling for people to unpack that, those areas of your life, right? And even get to the heart of the sin issues so that we might be able to properly triage where you're at, even giving your history and your upbringing and all of that, but then lead you ultimately to find biblical answers so that there's solutions to those issues in your life and you can grow in Christ, not live paralyzed by those things, right? Those are very valuable things. But in no way, shape, or form, even though some of those things may help explain or, or even exacerbate why you struggle in a particular area, in no way, shape, or form do those things justify or give you license to be living in unrepentant known sin. And I say that because I love you men. And I care about this, you as a group of men. You and those who are not here included. Don't justify your sin Give yourself license to sin against God and against others. James says, don't blame God. Don't blame extenuating circumstances. Don't blame someone else for your sin, right? To do so is to buy into the way of the world. The way of the world is to point fingers, not take ownership, right? God's way is, I'm going to take ownership of my sin. I'm going to own it. I'm going to practice humble repentance, Remember what I've told you again and again? The pathway to Christ-exalting healing and change in your life is humble repentance. Humble repentance, which begins by us acknowledging our sin instead of blaming others for it, brothers. How is sin then birthed in our lives? Watch this. What's the deceptive strategy that we must be aware of? Verse 14, I think, is so helpful because it, it sort of gets into the, the inner workings of how sin is born, right? Look at it again, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Note the, that the strategy is deception, isn't it? Sin doesn't come and say, hey, I'm sin, I'm going to destroy your life, but enjoy me for a little while. Does it do that? Oh, no, it's very alluring, very enticing. It promises certain things, doesn't it? And then it doesn't deliver in the end. Look at the words there, lured and enticed. The imagery is, is that of fishing. Some of you enjoy fishing. Here's a good one for you, right? It pictures a, a fish minding his own business, but all of a sudden he sees a, a dangling bait, usually some kind of a, war, a worm or object, right? And rather than fleeing, what does this fish do? He fixes his sight on the tasty bait. He's lured or drawn is the sense there. He's enticed by it. He keeps moving toward the bait. And eventually he gets to the point where he, he bites. And then what happens to that fish? He winds up on your, on your plate at Baja Fresh, right? 
or some cool sushi place. For those of us who love some good fish, this is quite enjoyable. But James's point is, this is a frightening picture for that fish. From the eyes of that fish, it leads to his undoing, to his death. It leads to his destruction. But it looked good, didn't it? It seemed promising. It seemed harmless. It seemed all satisfying for that fish. But this was all part of the deceptive strategy. And men, this is how sin lies to us and deceives us, right? It looks good. It seems harmless. It seems like it's going to satisfy us. But in the end, it's bitter. It damages us, doesn't it? Now, did you notice the super loaded words there at the end of verse 14? Look there at the end of verse 14. He says that this person is deceived by his own what? Lust. Underline that. James does not say that we're lured and enticed directly here by, to use an example, by a naked woman on a screen, right? When we want to look at porn. Though that is certainly part of the bait, if you will. No, he says we're lured and enticed by our own lust. Epithumia, which can be translated lust or, or desire. And depending on the context, that word epithumia can be good desire or, or sinful desire. Here in this context, what's the connotation? Evil desire, right? Evil lust, sinful desire. James says we are deceived by our own sinful desires which flow from our sinful hearts. That right there is the root of the problem and that's where we need to attack our sin, right? At the level of the heart. Mark 7, 14. Write that passage down. Let me just read it for, to you. Mark 7, 14 and following. Jesus says, hear me all of you. And understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, Mark seven eighteen, and he said to them, then, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus says to the religious leaders, you have it all wrong, dudes. All wrong. It's not about those outward, uh, outward ceremonial laws of cleanliness and all of that, right? Which those things don't defile you. It's your heart that is already evil, right? That's why they needed him. They needed the Messiah to transform them from the heart. It's the heart that central control system where everything flows from. It's the heart, the, the seat of your thoughts, the seat of your feelings, the seat of your emotions, the seat of your attitudes, contemplations, priorities, the seat of your sinful desires. And it's your sinful desires that lure you and entice you, says James. Thus, you need to work on your heart and address the, the inner recesses of your heart. Right? It's like, the hassle of pulling out weeds, right? I hate pulling weeds. But what do we need to do when we pull weeds? We need to pluck them out from the root, right? 
Otherwise, they grow a lot faster, and then they're all over the place. That's the idea here. Our hearts are the problem. We need to go to the root of the problem. Solomon says to his son in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it, from the heart, flow the springs of life. Solomon says, you want to stay away from sin, son? Cultivate your heart. Guard your heart. Why? Because everything flows from there, right? This obviously begins, brothers, with, with working on our thought life. Working on our thinking, right? On our head, our thinking, our thoughts. Because we are full of, of stinking thinking, aren't we? Amen? We're full of some stinking thinking. We get dirty every day with the things of the world. We've got lots of polluted thinking. So Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tells us that we need to, to not be conformed to this world. But later on he says, but be transformed, metamorpho, right? Metamorphosis. Be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind, by the renewal of your thinking. That's where sanctification begins, brothers. With addressing your, your thinking. We need to wash our minds with the water of the word, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See that? Sinful thought? I want to bring that thought into submission with the lordship of Christ in that moment. Right? I want to kill it right there through memorization of Scripture, through preaching the gospel to myself, like the psalmists, why? Who preach to themselves in the midst of their despair, in the midst of their testing. When they're questioning God, they preach to themselves. We need to address our thought life if we are going to cultivate a heart for God. It begins there, but then it moves to our heart affections. Our heart affections. We need to address our, our heart idols. Those things that we worship. Those things that we love or hate. Brothers, Christians are not just known for what they believe, but also for what they love and what they hate. Amen? And we need to learn to love God more and hate our sin more. You say, Pastor Kempis, I'm striving to do that, but I'm still losing the battle. Let me ask you, are you practicing Jesus' principles of, of starvation and amputation? What? What are you talking about? Starvation and amputation, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, Jesus said. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, there's our word, epithumia, with sinful intent, Sinful desire has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Here's the Kempis Hernandez summary takeaway, right? Which do you prefer? Life eternal, quantity and quality of life, or you going to hell? Which one do you prefer? Easy answer, right? You say, but I'm already saved, Pastor Kempis. Yes, brother in Christ. And those who sincerely are saved want to be holy. Amen? 
You long to be holy. You long to be like Jesus. Even though we have those moments and those seasons of life when there are struggles, we're always going to come back to the throne of grace, aren't we? We, want, we long to be like Christ. And 1 John 2 tells us that those who have this hope fixed on, on Christ purify themselves just as Jesus is pure, right? That's the mark of the believer right there. So don't be putting up your flag and saying, well, I'm a believer already. What does this have to do with, with me? Everything. Because he's writing to Jewish Christians. He says, you better be killing your sin or sin will be killing you, believer. Right? You see why this has been such an impactful passage for my own heart over the years? Because of my own battle against sin, brothers. Because I'm right there where you guys are at as well. Maybe it looks different for us some extent or another. But I want to be holy too. But we need to recognize that salvation is not some get-out-of-jail-free card, right? We are saved from the penalty of our sin, but we're also saved from the power of our sin. And those who desire life eternal will, by His grace, take drastic measures to put their sin to death. That's what Matthew chapter 5 means. It doesn't mean to literally pluck your eyes out or cut off your limbs. Otherwise, this would be a pretty gruesome place in this room, right? With all of us being in pretty bad shape right now. Paul says to young Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Flee youthful passions, young pastor. Flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, if you want to be a godly man in this relentless pursuit of holiness, it's, remember that it's always a two-front, all-out war. On one front, you need to flee youthful passions or lusts. Run. Don't linger. Don't stay there. Be like Joseph, right, who sees this woman out there, this crazy, good-looking woman. He says, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I want to ask Joseph one day, what was going through your mind? And I submit to you that probably what was going on through his mind is, if I linger any longer, I'm going to jump in bed with her, right? Don't linger. Flee youthful lusts. And that's what I'm telling you tonight. As you're struggling with your sins, some of you who are in the depths of your sin, flee youthful lusts. Stop dinking around with your holiness and your sanctification, brother in Christ. Stop playing games with God. And then he says, pursue, that's the other front, righteousness. And then listen to this, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, you know what the godly man says? I'm not going to do this alone. I need other people. I'm not going to be the lone zebra. I'm not going to isolate myself because I understand, as John Owen said, that sin grows in isolation, right? So we want to expose it. We want to expose it. This is why we need you to not only be here, on Tuesday nights or Friday mornings for the other guys or be watching by live stream. We need you to be an active participant rather than a passive spectator in the lives of men, opening your lives up for other men to speak into your life, opening your heart so that you would be an instrument in the Redeemer's hand in the hands of other men. You see that? Because of this battle right here, because of this kind of a thing right here. And some of you don't take this Bible study very seriously. For you, this has become a social club. Right? We don't want, this is not an Alcoholics Anonymous thing. This is not one of those social clubs. You understand that, right? 
We come here, brothers, for fellowship and community, to dig into the word of God and to be men who are being sanctified, who are becoming like Jesus mutually for the glory of God and the good of one another and because of our mission for the Great Commission here in this world. Amen? That's why we're here, brothers. Take it serious. Joyfully take it serious. Lovingly take it serious. Above all, you know what we need to do? We need to be men who cultivate a greater love for God and a delight in Him. Psalm 37 verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37 verse 4, I love that. That's not saying delight yourself in God so that He gives you what you want. Here's the right interpretation. He's saying that as you delight in God, as you feast in God, as you take joy in God, as you get to know God, as you pursue Him in a relationship that is vibrant and growing and you cherish and treasure God, He will put the right desires in your heart. That's what He's saying. With the result that you will desire what God desires. You will epithumia holy things. That's where we want to be, right? That's what I want. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, in case you're not motivated enough to relentlessly pursue holiness, thirdly, thirdly, write this down. Consider the destructive consequences. Consider the destructive consequences. Look at verse 15. Then desire, evil desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There are three generations of family members there, if you will, okay? Lust or evil desire conceives a baby, and that baby's name is sin, and then that sin grows, it matures, it develops, right? It's fully grown, and eventually it has its own baby, and that baby's name is death. Three generations. Lust, evil desire is the grandma, right? Sin is the mother, and death is the daughter. That's one ugly family right there, isn't it? How destructive is sin in our lives? Death in all its forms is traceable back to sin. Physical death in this world happens because of sin, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And eternal death, which is the everlasting separation of a person from God, from their creator, happens because of sin, because someone wouldn't repent of their sin and embrace God's provision for their sin and payment for their sin in Jesus Christ. Death in all its forms is traceable back to sin. Destructive consequences, right? Not to mention the pain and the hurt here in this lifetime that we will experience. Furthermore, we, we ourselves don't pause and count the cost of giving into our sin. I've told you before, what if David, before committing adultery with Bathsheba, would have been able to pause and consider the consequences, the destructive consequences of his sin were he to jump in bed with Bathsheba. What if he could see a video of his future? Of falling into sin with Bathsheba with some temporary pleasure, but then the devastation of the baby dying in the aftermath, right? Then the killing of Uriah, his killing of Uriah to cover his affair. Then Absalom, his son, rebelling and then dying. And then of the kingdom being torn from him. On and on the, ge- the consequences go. Not to mention, brothers, above anything else, him grieving God's heart. The man who was supposed to be God's, uh, the man after God's own heart. 
grieving the Lord. If he could see the future, would he have gone through with it? What about you? The next time you're giving in to your sin, consider the consequences. And don't think for a minute that you can keep it secret. One, nothing is ever in secret, right? Because who's omniscient? God. He sees everything already. Be sure that your sin will find you out, brother. So stop. Repent and confess your sin. Stop playing games with God. Stop lying to yourself that you can overcome this thing on your own. Remind yourself of, of the destructive consequences of sin in all its forms, wherever you may be, right? You may lose your purity. You may lose your marriage. You may lose your job. In some cases, you may lose your life. Physically speaking, though, your eternal soul will be preserved because of faith in Jesus, right? Because of Christ. But in some cases, even some believers have lost their life who have been in Christ because of some, some thing that they're, that they're getting into. Drug addiction or whatever. They're going to these escapes rather than going to Christ and seeking the help of the church, right? Sin brings destructive consequences. Thus, we must kill sin in the heart. Again, John Owen be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Finally, in the relentless pursuit of holiness, remember the divine Savior. Remember the divine Savior. And that's where I want, I want, us to, I want to leave you tonight. I love this. If sin leads to death in all its forms, then there is no hope for anyone, right? However, God, the one who does not tempt, has stepped in, and there's always hope in Him, in God our Savior, brothers. This is the case if, if you're not a Christian. You need to bow the knee to your king tonight that he might rescue you not only from the penalty of your sin, but from sin's grip, from the power of sin, and one day from the presence of sin. Amen? Trust Christ. Stop putting it off. And if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're a struggling Christian, turn to him today. The pathway to Christ-exalting change and healing in our lives is humble repentance and confession. Amen? He says, verse 16, notice, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Deceived about what? Well, he's told us about the source of sin and about the consequences of sin, that God does not do us evil, but instead, here's the question, what does God give us? Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or, or shadow due to change. James says, hey, in the battle, in the relentless battle and pursuit of holiness, let me tell you just how good God is. Let me tell you about my God. He only gives you good and perfect gifts, right? He's a good God. He's a benevolent God. He's a generous and kind God. He's the father of lights, he says. That's a reference to, to heavenly entities like the sun and the moon and the stars. In other words, he's the all-powerful one who created all of these heavenly bodies. This is how mighty he is. Remember that in the midst of your sense of, I'm feeling weak and there's no way that I can ever overcome this. Remember the father of lights, the almighty one, right? who created everything, does he have the power to help you overcome that sin, brother? Absolutely. And not only that, 
He's the unchanging one. He's the one with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, he's immutable. He never changes. He's the one unchanging constant in our lives. He's the mighty creator and sustainer of the universe. Question, why is James highlighting all of these wonderful things about God? Answer, because in the moment of our temptation and our subsequent giving into sin, we forget about God and we become guilty of lies and erroneous thoughts about God, don't we? We forget about his love, about his goodness, about his power, about his unchanging nature. On and on the list goes, brothers. It's in the moments of our compromise that we tend to function like practical atheists, right? And we forget about God, as if we didn't even know this God. James says, don't be deceived about the nature of who God is. And in case you need further reminder of the goodness of God to you, notice what he adds in verse 18. Of his own will. Of his own sovereign will is the idea there, right? Not because of anything you did, believer. Not because of anything you brought to the table, Christian. You brought nothing to the foot of the cross except your sin, right? He says, of his own will, he brought us forth. That's salvation language there. That's language of the new birth. How? By the word of truth. That is, by the word of God centered on the gospel, he brought you forth. He caused you to be born again to a living hope, right? First Peter chapter 1. To what end? that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He says, you want to know just how good God has been to you? He gave you the free gift of salvation, right? So that according to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and following, speaking of the resurrection of Jesus, we will be resurrected from the dead as Jesus, the first fruits, was resurrected from the dead, right? We as believers will be a type of first fruits among his creatures along with Christ, God's beloved son. Boy, he's pointing right there even to the victory of the resurrection, isn't he? Does it make sense to you why he's bringing the nature of God into the equation here in the midst of the relentless pursuit of holiness? He's giving us hope, hope in God, Hope in the future, the eschatological future, because of everything that Jesus has done on the cross. Amen? That's what he's doing here. In other words, we have an eternal future beyond this sin-cursed world where we struggle with sin, brothers, where there is a relentless pursuit of holiness. And our hope is that one day, Revelation chapter 21, right? No more pain, no more struggle, and battling against sin, brother in Christ, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And a lot of those tears are because of our own struggle with sin, because we long to be holy. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for the hope that you give us in this wonderful text of the fact that you are the, the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Though we are constantly changing and this world is constantly changing, you are the one unchanging constant. You're dependable. You're our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, our ever-present help in time of trouble. Thank you, Lord, that even in the moment of the inward solicitation to sin, that, Lord, we can trust in your grace and in your deliverance. Help us to do that as men of God and help us as we go into our small groups now to discuss how these things apply, Father, and not to be afraid of Lord being transparent with one another, of opening our hearts and lives, what do we have to lose? What do we have to lose, Lord? We have everything to gain. Help us to be open. Help us to be instruments in the hands of the Redeemer 
that you might help us to, Lord, um, be in some way, shape, or form a support and a stake beside another man of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.